Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as usual, with my sidekick and friend Miguel. Hey, everybody. That's, That's all it. I have to say. That's, That's all I it, have to say right? today. No profound thoughts. Um, I also want to do a quick thank you, shout out to Thermostore, Ultra Air, Santa Fe for our awesome microphone that I'm talking to you on right now. And uh, <laughs> that audio quality, so clean, audio, so, so clear. Good. Yes. And I would like to. Um, briefly introduce the episode that I'm going to briefly introduce the speakers and then we're going to jump right in and have a good conversation. So today we are talking about uh, various themes associated with the, the grid collapse that we experienced uh, a couple of weeks ago now. And I will just tell you just all of you from the start that this episode, this topic feels personal to me. You know, I've just finished a few days of um, waterless cold weather camping um, while not leaving the privacy of my own home. <laughs> so I'd just like to remind us all that we you know we furnish our homes uh, with far more than just furniture, right? We provide them with high density resources that are delivered from vast, powerful, massively interconnected, complex systems that are in fact um, taken for granted and um, subject to failure as we just experienced. So I'll just leave that as the little introduction. I have the great good fortune of introducing you to uh, Dr. Joshua Rhodes and Dr. Charlie Upshaw. Um, I'm going to go by Josh. Josh is one of the founding partners as I, at IdeaSmiths. He's also a research associate with the Weber Energy Group at UT Austin. And uh, he's also a senior consultant and has just now been elevated to research fellow here at Positive Energy. So congratulations on that, Charlie. <laughs> Congrats, Josh. Um, <laughs> do you want to say a little more expanded version of uh, hello, who I am kind of thoughts? Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me on the, on the podcast today. Um, yeah, so through the various hats and roles that I wear, we you know, do energy modeling of all types of systems, everything from individual homes all the way down, all the way up to, you know, the grid writ large, the macro, you know, massive grid with the power plants and transmission lines. We push that into the future to see how it responds to certain um, stresses. And we also, or certain policies that may come down the pike. So we have a, a pretty intimate view or, you know, inner workings of how the grid works and, you know, happy about the, happy to talk today about how it did not work. Uh, yeah, that's week. a good way to say it. Yeah, thank you. We're going to get into that. And I'd just like to comment how uh, in demand Josh has been. And so we're really, really fortunate and grateful. Okay, so I also have another founding partner of Ideasmiths here, Dr. Charlie Upshaw. And he is also lead engineer here at Positive Energy and a colleague and a close friend. So uh, welcome, Charlie. Any uh, any further introduction on your part? Maybe you want to describe Ideasmiths a little? or um, Yeah, so uh, sure. Um I wear a couple hats. Josh and I wear a couple hats. Ideasmiths is a consulting company we started now eight years ago almost. Wow, man, I feel old. Um, <laughs> in, we started it in grad school. Uh, the fun fact being the impetus for starting it uh, was the movie Transformers 4, Revenge of the Fallen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you put that on my list. 
Yeah, so uh, Weber got contacted by some, you know, production set person um, looking for energy-related props for the movie. Long story short, Josh and I built a vertical axis wind turbine prop uh, out of some PVC pipe, a, bi- a couple bicycle wheels, and a garage door opener. <laughs> and uh, and it's in the movie. It is in the movie. I need to get the screen grab of it. Um, but yeah, they, they asked uh, you know they asked us to invoice them, and we were like, what the heck is that? Like, how do you invoice somebody? Uh, like, we should form a company so that we can invoice people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we started Idea Smith. <laughs> dedicated to the art of invoicing. Yeah. <laughs> we right. do, Idea Smith does uh, energy, uh, techno-economic analysis, early stage technology vetting for energy and water technologies. Uh, we do some kind of bigger picture uh grid studies, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, would you call it, it's not necessarily policy reporting, but informing the policy process through um, high-level grid models, uh, electric grid models. Um, Josh is the grid modeler extraordinaire. Um, yeah, we, we, we've done a lot of different fun projects across a lot of uh, different industries. Awesome. All right. So thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Josh. So as you start to say that questions appropriate, relevant to our topic, fly into my mind, and I'm going to restrain when I pull back the brakes a little bit. I think it's worth setting up the story a little bit, and then we can jump into things. Because for instance, policy versus physical assets and money optimization, uh, as opposed to power flow optimization come to my mind. But I guess I would like to just remind us all that... um, the electric grid or power grid is an interconnected network for delivering electricity from producers to us, to consumers, um, which makes it sound very simple. There's three grids in the U.S., the Eastern and Western interconnects, and then there's the, uh, the lone ERCOT, which is um, named much like we named townhome communities like Whispering Pines and Deer Creek, which uh, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. How long has ERCOT been in existence, you guys? I'd like to start there. If, if either of you know that uh, little bit of a pop quiz hotshot moment. I mean, I think, so ERCOT has has evolved from its original roles of, as a reliability coordinator across Texas. And it, it really was kind of set in motion in the 90s through a mm-hmm. Senate Bill 7, uh, which started to deregulate the uh, the Texas energy sector, which took it from a, a vertically integrated system like you see in, in Georgia or some of the other south, south, southeastern states where one company owns all of the aspects of electricity from the power plants to the lines to they're the ones you write your bill to. Um, mm. But it's been a gradual process over, over time to get where we are um, today. So there's no... It, there was a point when ERCOT became ERCOT, changed from something else into and changed the name and the logo. Um, but... <laughs> I can't remember exactly when it is, but it's it's been a slow process really for the past you know thir- 20, 30 years or so. Yeah, and deregulation is actually kind of a good uh, like backstory prologue here, uh, and I think it's something that um, I have seen a lot of anger about <laughs> in the past several weeks. Um, and and when Josh says the the electric market was deregulated, what that basically means is allowing for. Um, lowest cost competition for electric uh, generation, um, like the, the generation of power um, and the purchasing of power. 
So there is a, a, a competitive market where the generators say, I can generate electricity for eight cents a kilowatt hour. And somebody else says, well, I can generate it for seven and I can generate it for six. And ERCOT has become this kind of market uh, clearinghouse. You know, they're kind of like eBay or something like that, or like the stock market. You know, they don't own any, any of those assets. They just manage the, the interaction. Um, and what they do is they say, okay, here's how much demand there is for electricity on the grid right now. We need that much power. And they start with the lowest cost bid, and they work up from there to, you know, however much power they need. And they say, okay, we're buying power from these power plants. And the price is set by the highest bid. Um, and so with that, it's a, it's a energy only market, meaning you only get paid as a generator for generating energy. Um, and that, that competition in the electric generation space has, uh, really driven the price of electricity down. You know, it's something that has kind of led to our, uh, formerly famously low electric rates, uh, <laughs> But it's a, an incomplete or imperfect uh, process in that, um, you know, there's a, they, ERCOT is not a, um, they, they're not a regulator. They can't uh, set any regulation specifics on um, generators or anything like that um, from, uh, from like a thou shalt be available to generate at this <laughs> time sort of thing. Right. Um, and so... You know, in events like this, uh, the best way that they can kind of manage it is uh, they've created this cap of $9,000 per megawatt hour. Um, which is $9. Which is $9, $9, a, kilowatt which is $9 a kilowatt hour. Which is The average uh, rate's like 11 cents. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So order of magnitude 100 times more. Yeah. Yeah. A gallon of milk could cost $2 or $200. We're not sure. Right. <laughs> And so that's uh, that scarcity pricing usually only happens, you know, a few dozen, maybe a few dozen hours per year, maybe not even. Yeah, our systems, you know, the scarcity pricing mechanisms are designed to bridge the gap between the minute by minute fluctuations of electricity price on the wholesale market and the decade long investments that it takes to build power plants. They're, they're designed to only, you know, happen a few hours out of the year, a few tens or hours out of the year, and typically in the summertime. Because in the summertime, it's only going to happen during a few hours of a particular day because the sun eventually goes down. We need less, we have less demand for cooling. And so some of that, you know, that scarcity price when we get close to our, our peak demand, it's not really designed for winter as we've seen. And like, you know, that that's part of something we can get into is like we had a lot of scarcity pricing that happened over the event of the Texas freeze. And um, that's a big point of contention right now because, you know, is a lot more than the market was designed really to handle. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about that briefly. Charlie, you want to jump in? Yeah, um, I think the, kind of a way to think about it is the scarcity pricing is a long-term price signal to encourage the um, build-out of what are called peaking plants, essentially plants that only run for a few hundred hours per year, maybe. You know, they run during the hottest hours during the summer and maybe during the coldest nights during the winter. And all they, they do is provide that last little bit of electricity that the grid needs during those peaking events. But it's, it's a price signal for sort of like the typical year where they're doing, where the power plant, um, you know, kind of the people who are developing these power assets say, okay, we expect maybe 100 or 200 hours or however many hours per year of some elevated scarcity pricing. 
and and we need all of that generation to pay for the operation and construction of the plant over its lifetime. And you can mm-hmm. kind of think of like those peaker plants as like the electric resistance backup of a heat pump or something right. like that. Like the heat pump is normally the operation throughout the entire year, but you have like this really cheap but really expensive to operate part that kicks in when like demand is really high. Right, um, right. Okay. Well, this is exactly where I wanted to go because uh, when I design a heat pump, I can I mean, I, I can actually shop for other equipment so I don't have to use electric resistance. I can right. provide different capacity, but it all comes down to the load calculation, right? Like the model that says, here's how much power we expect, right? We, and we, we try to make it so that we expect something that's not only going to be exceeded a few tens of hours a year. And weather is changing, right? So the yeah. climate is, is weirding. And uh, is that, <clears throat> Charlie mentioned thou shalt, that ERCOT doesn't have the ability to thou shalt very much. Um, who has the ability to thou shalt get your energy model, or excuse me, your load models correct and weather models correct? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a, that's a, it's a great question. Um, really, it's the market, the nebulous thing of the market, market? is what, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, in the way that a system works in Texas, I mean, there's, since ERCOT or no regulatory body can compel anyone to build anything, it's the market, the way our market's designed is the market sends the signal for developers. By failing. Does it send the well, signal by failing? <laughs> it's supposed to send the signal by those scarcity prices that we talked about. But no market, no market and no system is designed necessarily to fail. And so, like, we, we've seen a whole bunch of weird things happen given when the ERCOT market, like, when it, when it did fail and was not able to meet supply and demand. Um, it's, I mean, I think one, I think to, to, to kind of, like, preface the whole thing, I think one needs to kind of take a little bit of a step back and look at, like, the electricity system in context to a bunch of other systems. Because, like, this was not an isolated event just in the electricity sector that led to people's power going out. I mean, most people, sure. it, um, most people experienced this event that way because that's what went down for them was their power and then their water. But I mean, if we really kind of step back and look at it, I mean, the driver of this was like a cold weather event across the entire state, you know, that we haven't seen the likes of in 30 some odd years or something like that. Correct. And it was that, it was that aggregate, like that demand that, you know, massive amounts of, you know, demand for heating particularly homes and businesses that, you know, drove demand in ERCOT beyond if we had been able to meet that demand beyond what we would have ever done in the summertime, which when people think of Texas, they don't think of snow and ice, right? They think of like hot deserts and cactus and cowboys for, for better or worse. But you you know, we're not famous for our winters. We're famous for our, for our summers. Like everything is kind of designed around that. So when the weather threw us a curveball. um, you know, we had that it precipitated into a failure on not just the electricity sector, but also the natural gas sector. And that's important because, you know, the ERCOT grid relies about about half the power plants we have run off natural gas. And so if we if we can't get gas to those power plants or, you know, those power plants freeze up, then we're going to have trouble meeting electricity. Uh, we're going to have trouble meeting electricity demand. And our electricity system is, like I was talking about earlier, is so geared towards the summer when everything is more understandable and more linear. You know, natural gas flows to power plants. It makes power and that power flows to homes, you know, to cool them. And there's no competition for that gas. But what we saw during this event was because 60% of homes in Texas use electricity for heating and 40% use natural gas. We saw a massive pull on the natural gas system from both power and heating demands. Yeah. At the same time as the wind, as the weather froze our supply of natural gas, 
gas out in West Texas. And so we had a, a depressurization of our natural gas system. We couldn't put enough in for everybody who wanted to pull power out. And so some power plants had to shut down because they couldn't get fuel. It'd be like a fuel pump going out in a car. You can't move the fuel from the tank to the engine. The engine's not going to run. Right. At the same time, we had a bunch of coal and nuclear and other natural gas plants had their cooling water intakes freeze. And on some level, we ended up losing close to half of our generation capacity during the time when we were demanding the most amount that we've ever demanded in the system of both of these systems. We push both of these systems to their edge and then beyond that. And so it's not surprising that they broke. And so whenever they broke, that precipitated down into failures in our water system where we couldn't pump and clean enough water to keep the lines pressurized, sending water out to homes. And so we had to and the way you know every water utility knows that they have leaks, and so they whenever they pressurize the the water line, so the water leaks out. Because if you depressurize, if you don't have enough pressure in them, they basically become French drains, and the stuff gets in, and Ouch. you have no idea what that stuff is. And so we ended up having to do water boil notices, and some people who are on high enough elevations around the state, you know, actually weren't able to get you know water at all. And then that water system turned into a housing crisis when you had you know pipes burst and freeze every uh, pipes freeze and burst everywhere. And now we're having you know massive amounts of insurance claims that are going through our system, turning into you know housing crisis, which will turn into a financial crisis in both the electricity sector because not everyone who buys electricity on the wholesale market has been able to pay ERCOT, who also acts as the financial clearinghouse for the entire thing, and so they're not able to pay all the generators, who then may not be able to pay the people who get who sold them natural gas. So it is a huge interconnected system, and we can yep. drill down into any given point of it. And it gets into the culture of our society and yeah. it goes deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, um, you know, <clears throat> it's not like this came without warning. It's right. not like, oh my gosh, the, the grid's not weatherized. It's not winterized, you know? Um, yeah. This has happened multiple times, the most right. recent being 2011. Uh, when we had another significant uh, cold weather event that tripped some power plants offline, it, it was not nearly as cold for nearly as long. And the, I think we only lost a, a few generators. Um, but we saw similar things in terms of, uh, you know, freezing of wells and depressurization of the gas grid. And there was, a, you know, reports written and, and warnings made. But in you know, instead of spending, I guess, the political capital to force the companies to spend the capital capital, the money, <laughs> uh, you know, essentially the the state, you know, entities that ultimately would be in charge of it or would empower um, some other regulator to be in charge of it decided not to and said, yeah, that'll probably never happen again. Uh, <laughs> Which is it? Is the market regulating itself, or are there regulators? Well, there. I mean, there, there, there are regulate. I mean, we we call the the market deregulated, but it's not a, the best term in the world because there there are regulations on on the market. But in terms of like how much capacity gets built, how many power plants get built, um, what we design down for is more or less kind of left up to the individual decisions of the of the companies that operate in the in the in the wholesale electricity market. And so each of them actually. You know, after 2011, they took these you know best practices that were made voluntary, not compulsory, and each of them had to decide you know how much of it were they going to do. Some of them, it. I was just looking at some data earlier today. It appears that like there are existing power plants that failed in 1989, 2011, and this time. So it's like there's it's pretty apparent that there are some power plants that have been around for a while that um did not. There are some that did better. Um, and there, you know, there are some, there's some new ones that that did worse. And so it's, it's kind of a, a, a mixed 
bag, but it's like it's not there's not some standard upon which that every every power plant has to has has to get to. I mean, we could design a system that would be robust down to minus fifty. It would cost more money. It's just we have to decide what what is that standard that we you know want to have on the system. Yeah, and I guess to answer your question about regulation, there's the Public Utility Commission of Texas, the PUCT uh, or PUC, and um, they have sort of an oversight role of the electric system in Texas. It's more around sort of uh, I guess it's a rate structures and access to electricity and um, those sorts of things, and correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, but I don't think they, I don't know if they have the specific authority granted to them to make those sort of thou shalt weatherize types of, uh, you know, declarations. Well, I think they're, they're well, or they have it, but they just haven't used it. That's, <laughs> that's been a lot of debate in the legislature the past couple of weeks since this event is is who had the ability, if anybody. Um, did they did they have the ability to make things compulsory? Did they and did they not do it? I, but I mean, the way the system works, honestly, if anyone had tried to do this a month ago, I would imagine that like the back they, they would have so much backlash against it that it, it, it you know political backlash. Yeah. yeah, if anyone tried to do this a year ago and said you know hey we want you to weatherize the plants, it would have been a political shitstorm. To be honest, I mean because it would have cost more money, it would have added costs to the plants. They would have cried foul to everybody, their uh, political donees, I guess, <laughs> the yeah. people they I give mean, money to. Yeah, and, I mean, it's essentially how we do other infrastructure, too, around here, like, like you know, homes. We, we, we insulate them and winterize them to a certain degree. We could do more like they do in North Dakota or whatever, but it would cost more money. And, like, would we, quote, unquote, use that extra capacity or that extra insulation or that extra air suit, like, you know, how often would it, would it make sense to do so? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's those kind of decisions. Like we can totally build the system to be robust against these things, but it does cost more money. And we have to figure out like, is this, do we think this is a hundred year event, a 30 year event, a 10 year event, or a five year event? Because what we think that is will determine, you know, how willing we're able to, to, um, you know, to uh, how much money we're willing to spend. Yeah, and I guess I, I I will critique a little bit in that you know it is that's a good analogy in terms of and, and a good point we'll come back to on the kind of um, design standards for buildings. Um, I'd say the difference is you know sort of a sliding scale on a building, right? You know, like it'll get colder inside if it's less insulated. You know, maybe um, maybe it, you'll have more risk of pipe freezing or something like that. But like a you know a grid that has that's a little under capacity for an event like this has massive problems and shuts down, <laughs> you know, it's not like a sliding or you're going to rolling blackout. I guess like the, the stakes are a little bit higher. It's not, Oh, it's 60 degrees inside instead of 70. It's, you know, 40% of the States without electricity or something like that. That's um, I would say that's sort of a trade-off is, you know, the electricity system uh, and this might be a good kind of moment to talk about the stakes of, electricity generation and what happens when demand exceeds supply um, because yeah. the system is not designed for that. And uh, really bad things can happen when you start to overload the system. And I know I saw a bunch of angry tweets and next door posts that were like, Austin Energy should just turn everything on and just you know give the finger to ERCOT and use the amount of energy they want. And, um, you know, the, the system is designed to run at 60 hertz, which is a frequency. And as that starts to fall, you can run into issues with 
big rotating equipment that is not designed to run at less than 60 hertz. Uh, like over or under frequency events can cause massive damage in power plants. Um, you can have all sorts of voltage issues as well, which can potentially overload transformers and uh, destroy equipment that is extremely expensive and slow to replace. Oh yeah, it's like a massive line dance with millions of people participating. If the, if, if the entire grid had gone down, if supply and demand had gotten out of whack and they hadn't shed load, we might still be in the dark right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. It's like, um, you know, massive, you know, uh, kind of transmission transformers, those things take they have months, months long lead times. Uh, yeah. If a power plant were to throw, <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, generator, like that's happened before where a, a big, uh, like spinning generator gets out of whack and the torque on that thing is insane and it can literally just throw itself right out of its bearings. Um, and then that power plant is down for a year or something, you know, like months and months. Um, so when the frequency sags, power plants go into alert mode. And if it starts to fall too far, they will just drop off the grid and kind of coast down and, and not provide any power. And so we were, I think, three minutes away from that happening uh, where the, the frequency kept dropping as plants kept falling off the grid and the remaining plants couldn't keep up with the demand. And, uh, you know, like if, if ERCOT hadn't shed load, all those other plants would have turned off. And when you turn off big power plants, it takes a really long time to turn them back on because they all run at the same frequency. So you have to put power into the system to spin all of that inertia back up to 60 hertz. And you have to refire boilers and all sorts of things. And it is an extremely complicated process that we've never really done before in the state of Texas. So, you know, it, maybe it would have gotten up, maybe it would have only taken a few weeks if nothing was damaged or a week, but maybe not, you know, we don't know. Um, and like Josh said, we potentially could still be without power. Like it, it was a really bad event. It could have been potentially extremely catastrophic. And I actually have a, I have a question for you guys about, so it, it did, it did seem like the utility provide, like the, the providers across the state really pushed it till, to the very edge before they, they dropped off. Right. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, Austin energy, for example, to use a local, um, example was not able to do rolling blackouts because they simply didn't have enough overhead to continue shedding the load necessary. They decided on some critical loads and I know there's still, like city level investigations going on about which districts were chosen to keep on. But for, you know, Christoph and I went, I think the total was 54 hours in our neighborhood without power um, rather than the rolling blackouts, which were intended. And so maybe you guys could, could talk a little bit about that. Like why, why was that the approach rather than a more gradual um, shutdown? Yeah, and watch out for all the hyperbole, Charlie. It's three minutes crap. It's four minutes away from that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good job. So, I mean, like, yeah. So, so as Charlie was talking, I mean, you in, with electricity system, it's, it, it, it's basically a market that has to clear in real time. You have to match supply and demand at any, at any given time. And so, 
like in that in that leading up to the 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 early morning of the 15th um as you know we were having issues with getting fuel to power plants and they were having cooling water issues like our supply was just dropping precipitously and so they had to start shedding load in order to keep at least some part of the system operational otherwise it could have taken weeks to get back online but so what the the process for that in Texas is is ERCOT they they make the call on how much power needs on how much load needs to be shed on how who needs to, on on how much needs to be turned off and they tell the different transmission and distribution utilities Austin Energy which is one CPS San Antonio which is another Encore and Centerpoint and, and others are are other groups are, and others around Texas different co-ops that they say okay you're responsible for this many megawatts. Um, and so the local transmission distribution utility has to make up that choice of who do they turn off and who do they turn on. We lost so much supply. Again, we lost close to half of our power plants that by the, um, that by the time each of these transmission and distribution utilities had kept on their critical circuits, like those that have hospitals and police and fire and EMS, things you want to keep on Pump as stations. long as possible. <laughs> stations, I mean, all that kind of the things you want to turn on, the la things you want to be the last things to go off. When they did that, there simply was just no more power to go around. And so when you roll blackouts, you have to turn someone off before you can turn someone else on. And But there was no one left that they could turn off that was not critical so that they could turn someone on. I mean, something they definitely could have done better would have been to let us know that, hey, these rolling blackouts we said are going to be 45 minutes. They're actually not going to roll. So you need to make, you know, yeah, appropriate plan, plan yeah. plans. And this event, it was, I, I saw um, news, uh, conference from Austin Energy. They were saying in 2011, it was something like 150, I believe, megawatts that had to be shed. Uh, this time around, it was over 700. Uh, so it was a massive increase in the amount of power that had to be shed really quickly. And for reference, like Austin Energy's peak demand is somewhere around 2,800 megawatts. And so it's a sizable chunk of like how much demand they had to shed. Yeah. Yeah. Huge portion. And, and so... It was something that uh, Austin, I think everybody underestimated the severity of it just because we haven't seen that much cold weather that for that long of a time before. And so, you know, I think ERCOT and Austin Energy and everybody else uh, was kind of like, yeah, it's going to get cold. Maybe there'll be some rolling blackouts. Last 2011, we saw, you know, 100, 150 megawatts or whatever kind of that needed to be rolled and then being hit with, you know, five times that much <laughs> kind of, I think caught them off guard and the amount of plants that went offline caught everybody off guard and the granularity at which they're controlling the system is basically at kind of the substation level. Um, it's not, they're not able to, to pick and choose individual customers or like Austin energy and other utilities don't have, you know, uh, SCADA system supervisory, supervisory con control and data acquisition. They don't have control uh, essentially into the, the very fine edges of the distribution system. Yeah, so, you know, you can turn off big districts, big areas at a time with this SCADA system really quickly, but you can't turn off, like, those 10 houses and that 20, you know, like, that, I'd say that's sort of the, the um, what people think or expect is, like, that the electric system has perfect control at all level, and that just does not exist uh, <laughs> in our current in our current electric distribution system. It's something that I think is going to start to happen pretty soon. I think this event is going to really help precipitate it because um, you know, if, if and when we see this again, 
having much finer granularity on when people get turned off and, and for how long, um, you can much more equitably share that, uh, um, the finer control that you have. Um, and so, yeah, like when, when gigantic swaths of the city are on a critical circuit because there's one hospital or one police station or something like that, that that's what's kind of, it's a unfair uh, limiting factor. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the promises of smart meters, which came to my house about <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, was in fact this higher granularity and control during events like this. So the, yeah, the theory, so theoretically, yeah, I mean, there are millions of smart meters across Texas. Almost every customer should have one by now. Theoretically, that capability exists. It's the back end is not robust enough. So like there, the, the sh remote turn off and shut down turn off, turn on procedure is only able to handle a couple thousand per day of those requests around the state. But this would have had to have been millions per day in order to- right. Millions in like a, a five minute span sort of yeah. thing, right? You know, and that's like a, the, the, sm the, the smart connect disconnect is more around not having to truck roll for change of electric service or putting a new, you know, like you, you, know, you move into a new place and you start your new service. Somebody doesn't have to come out to- you know, manually change it over and turn something off or turn something on. So it's like, that's really what it was, what it was built for, um, was that kind of remote managed, you know, kind of operations, uh, billing management type stuff for, for the utility. I think theoretically it's like, okay, yeah, I could turn customers off in, in the event of an emergency, but no one for forecasted really a, uh, statewide or like, you know, system wide emergency that would require immediate shutdown. But I think that, and like Josh was saying, that's a back-end issue. That's a, like a communications issue on the back-end of getting that information out to the meters fast enough. There's just not enough bandwidth on those systems to, to wow. move all those commands. Really? They're extremely complicated, uh, you know, wide area networks, kind of like hybrid uh, networks of wireless and, and maybe power line communications in some cases, you know. And yeah, they're, they're just not high bandwidth networks. And I and I, I imagine that the the individual like the um, the individual utilities are actually probably somewhat remiss to use them because if they if they're doing precision cut, turn off turn off cutoffs during this event right. if they precision turn off someone who's got a breathing machine or something ah, like that CPAP or something yeah. it's a CPAP or something like that I mean that can yeah. be that can be deadly if you're doing it at the feeder level you can kind of hide behind the fact that we turned off everybody versus like individuals. And so I think I, I would imagine that that's like a really tricky, hard thing to do. I mean, yeah. it's kind of the parallel, like in what happened in some of the, the electricity sector turned off um, critical loads in the natural gas sector, like compression stations and, and processing facilities that even curtailed our natural gas supply getting further in and crippled our, our, our power. And so, but they just didn't know at this point that all of those things existed. And I imagine the TDUs that they also are somewhat hesitant to to use that capability um, because then they may be liable for things. Right. Okay. So I want to get to the demand side, but first I want to wrap up on the supply side. So we we critiqued the word deregulation uh, tangentially there. We said, oh, maybe not deregulation isn't the right word. I wanted to say like poorly regulated, but really more like strategically regulated to provide the functional outcome of low cost electricity most of the time. Yeah. Um, I just quick comment or question actually. If the, instead of the eastern and western interconnect, we had the northern and southern, 
And the southern one was a massive interconnection across many states and got this unexpected weather event. Would it have gone down or would are they managed differently and or relative to other um, countries? Like, is the ERCOT grid generally run in, in the way in a similar way to other uh, regulated grids? So as far as like as, as far as like the, the basic operations of like how some things work. I mean, they, they all run on the same physics. And so like the, the electrical engineering <laughs> part of it's the same, but like it's the, the market design is different. And so Texas is more, is more similar to, um, um, uh, like Alberta, Alberta has a similar market and also New Zealand has a similar market to, to Texas and they're relatively also islanded. Interesting. Uh, New Zealand is an actual, <laughs> actual island. Um, <laughs> but Alberta has mountains and uh, Manitoba on its either side of it. So it's like there's not much there. Um, <laughs> take that, Manitoba. <laughs> yeah, take that, Manitoba. So it's not the deregulation that led to this per se. It's a combination. So I, th- yeah, so th- that's a good, it's a good point. Like, I mean, either one of these, I, I don't see how a regulated or even a market with like a capacity market would have planned be – more so than what ERCOT was doing. Like we went into this, we went into the winter thinking we had a 40% reserve margin, which means we had 40% more power plants than we thought we will need like to meet our, our, our peak winter demands. Obviously those calculations were very wrong, um, but I don't know that anybody else would have made a better connection. If you had tried to get a 40% reserve margin through a capacity market, through a Texas style regulatory process, right. they'd been laughed out of the room. Yeah, it's exactly. like, it's not, they'd be like, we don't want to pay for this. We're not, we're not PJM, which is another interconnect on the East coast that has right. like famously high and a poorly run capacity market. But like, it just, it, it's, it's not, it's not, it's on anything. It's like, it's a kind of, it's a failure to, to plan for such weather events like this that drove demand so high, but I don't know if anyone else does. I, yeah, I, failure of imagination. It's potentially a failure of imagination, but I don't know that any reasonable person would have been able to get this through like any type of the regulatory process. So it's like I'm I'm not as quick to point fingers it's as other cultural issue to be yeah. blunt about it, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, regulations around winterization and requirements for that, I think, um, could have been made or required the the design of the market is not designed to make those sorts of regula- regulations it's more around kind of like pricing and making sure that you know energy is low low price and low cost yeah and well <laughs> for some people yeah so you know i think like requiring winterization i think we're going to see some of that kind of uh just like uh thou shalt uh, regulation come down. I wouldn't be too surprised to at least see some kind of push for that. Um, but you know, the electric market in general is all, it has been, um, famously this kind of lowest, who can be the lowest cost generator. And it's actually been really great for renewables. Uh, like Texas, you know, we set a renewable portfolio standard way back in time and blew past it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and now we, we are seeing, uh, phenomenally low prices for our electricity because wind and solar can be built extremely, uh, low cost and, and pretty high production capacity here in the state. And, and they can outcompete every other thermal generator on a marginal cost basis. They can bid negative while they still have the investment tax credit and their, you know, marginal costs are essentially zero without the, you know, of it, uh, the, the, the tax credit. So in that regard, it's 
it's been this uh, great market driver for renewables um, and has helped kind of grow the, the, that side of the, of the um, generation capacity. And I think that that's really where a lot of the kind of the complaints about, oh, this is renewable energy's fault. You know, it's not, you know, they like to point fingers Ooh. at the frozen wind turbines and stuff. And it's like, that's not, that wasn't the issue. <laughs> that was nearly unconscionable that adult human beings were willing to lie to their public like that. In my well, it's kind of like, I think you could have made the argument that like, hey, this energy only market that allows renewables to compete at the lowest marginal costs has driven, uh, you know, thermal generators that, in theory, may have been better prepared, although you know they wouldn't have been, you know, out of business. Like, they've driven this, like, firm power out of the market, and those firm power plants would have been able to kind of keep the lights on. I still think that's a false argument, but um, that's the <laughs> more sophisticated false argument that at least could have been attempted to be made, but instead they went with the frozen wind turbines. Yeah, I mean, and but the, the, and the thing is, is, like, because our like electricity system is so dependent on just in time delivery of natural gas. Like you could winterize the, the, the fleet of power plants, but if they can't get fuel, we still would have had rolling blackouts. Like if, if we don't take this as a holistic approach and there's a problem with that because public yes, utility commission is. in Texas regulates electricity, the railroad commission regulates natural gas. They don't really talk to each other that much. Um, and if you don't do, if we just do one and not the other, then we're going to end up in a similar. We're still going to have these failures. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, huge. And it's actually really interesting. You know, the, um, the oil and gas uh, lobby in Texas is extremely powerful. It's an extremely politically powerful um, political entity. And uh, as such, you know, you've seen all of this just fire being rained down on ERCOT and on the PUC. And a bunch of those people have quit because <laughs> kind of like Josh is saying, they're just like, what can we do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we can't fix the we can't totally fix the problem. Um, but you haven't seen any of that from like, there's been very little ire directed at the railroad commission and at kind of the, the natural gas and, and kind of oil sector. Maybe for our, our non-Texas listeners, explain what the railroad commission is. Ah, uh, yes. The railroad commission is the uh, oil and gas <laughs> regulating. I'm using uh, air quotes here for regular regulatory entity in the state. It's actually more of like a in-house lobbying arm at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> for the railroad, for, for the oil and gas industry. Yep. Yeah. This gets into larger, much larger societal paradigms. And we talk a lot about paradigms in this podcast, but the paradigm that if I'm rich and powerful, I will be happy. You know, it works for some people, but not when the grid falls down for everyone else. Um, Well, so I, I think it's a good moment to try to, because uh, there's there's so much rich richness, nuance, and frankly, um, stories that still have yet to play out on on the power production side. So switching over to the demand side, I'm going to go back to where we started, which which is this is personal to me. So here I am, no power, no water. You know, my whole family, gas is scarce. It's rumored to be about to go offline. Not only that, but the, of course, we have no data, you know, our router's down. Our cellular signal is also useless, right? So all we have is our mammalian selves on the earth inside a cold, dark box. And I happen to be about half a mile from downtown. So like, just to make it even more like of a mind blower, turn my head, look downtown, glass condos, freaking all glass condos 
lights are on there you know they're full of power not um, even condos the office buildings too that were entirely unoccupied yeah right? it's so it, so the, the idea that like um we we still allow our our enclosures to be so poor <laughs> um we could really do so much if we had high performance enclosures which exist and high performance mechanicals um so I, I would like to kind of unpack this idea of what can be done on the demand side. And, and um, I guess how, actually, let's go back a little bit. How did the demand Im, you know, impact the crisis? Like we know that the supply of natural gas was, was woefully um, poorly regulated and poorly planned by the Railroad Commission. So that supply side was a big problem. But what about demand? How big of a problem was demand? Demand was uh, 10 gigawatts higher than the previous winter peak, uh, which is hmm. a huge amount. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, we, we had data from one uh, co-op that we work with where their uh, electric demand essentially tripled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it was a bunch of, they're, they're, they're a winter peaking co-op. They, um, you know, they're, mostly rural and uh, mo like almost all the homes are on electric, have electric heat. And so uh, electric and resistance heat. A, a good amount of electric resistance and then also heat pumps and stuff. But a lot of the heat pumps went into emergency electric resistance mode because, you know, there were heat pumps and uh, yeah, demands that, you know, a lot of homes were using four times as much power and, and consuming four times as much energy uh, or actually probably more than four times probably. Yeah. <laughs> Probably we, we should run that math eventually, Josh. But yeah, I mean they were they were running in emergency heat mode for a hundred hours straight, basically. Um, and I think that's an important kind of distinction about um, the demand in the winter potentially compared to the summer. Is you know within the summer we have really high demands and it's electric, it's uh, residential homes air conditioners turning on during the hottest parts of the day to cool houses. That's really what drives our grid. In the winter, we, uh, like Josh said, we about 60% electric resistance uh, heat in homes. That is also the biggest constituent on the grid during the peaks. And uh, the difference is we can have cold days where it is just cold the entire time, which is different. You know, imagine like in the summer, we have a hundred degree afternoon for six, seven, eight hours, but then it drops off and gets down to 80. You know, imagine if it was a hundred degrees for a hundred hours straight that, you know, we would see these same kinds of problems. So, you know, we, we have these issues manifest a little bit more in the winter because it can just be cold day oh, and yeah. night, you know, for, for a longer period of time. And I think like those of us that like, you know, kind of operate kind of in the South or in Texas, like, you know, if you look at like the worst possible day you could have in the summer, I mean, think about like 105 degrees outside, and you're trying to keep your house at 75. That's a 30 degree temperature differential between the inside and the outside. But if you're trying to keep your house at 70 degrees and it's 10 degrees outside, it's a 60 degree differential. We're designing for that 30 in the summer, not paying as much close attention to that, you know, that double the temperature difference between the inside and outside. And so, yeah, we end up with, you know, these massive demands for, for space conditioning. And, and, it, and it quadruples, in fact, because... Um, electric resistance heat has a coefficient right. of performance of one. Even yeah. the crappiest air conditioner is going to be at least two. Yeah. So that means one unit of energy gives you two units of cooling, but it only gives you one unit of heating. Right. Yeah, it's just the compounding the, the misery. Yeah, there was actually a, a fantastic paper that we'll link in the show notes to that uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute put out called the, A Framework for Considering Resilience in Building Envelope Design and Construction. 
And essentially what the, the folks who wrote this paper did is they modeled a power outage in extreme cold conditions in Duluth, Minnesota, right? And they looked at different building types uh, for both, uh, basically for, for vulnerable populations and, and perfectly healthy populations and how long it took to fall below minimum safe um, temperature range. So like when did cold stress actually begin? And just to kind of briefly show you or, or talk about uh, where they landed, a typical 1950s home. So that that I, I will say that that threshold for like healthy populations is 40 degrees Fahrenheit and below uh, before you experience extreme cold stress. Typical 1950s home was eight hours uh, before you hit that. Uh, 1980s home was about 23. Code compliant 2009 home was 45. A net zero uh, energy ready home was 61. And a passive house was 152 hours before you drop below. And we did some some, uh, some <laughs> yeah, we did some anecdotal measurements here in Austin, and it it was extremely close, almost house for house. Um, our the house that we live in here is uh, you know 1919. It probably took less than eight hours, probably around five. Uh, the house I used to live in was 2009 code built, and it was just about 48 hours on the nose. Uh, and then we have a, a client who did a passive house and he never dropped below, uh, I think like 54 degrees, uh, throughout the entire outage. So, yeah, I think big picture, you know, the, um, the issue in Texas is our, our design winter conditions vary significantly from kind of North to South and from the, from the coast westward, um, in Austin, you know, it's in about 30 order of magnitude. Um, and so we were 20 degrees below that. Uh, 25 degrees potentially below that. So way below our design, normal design conditions. And, uh, you know, code is kind of written for these 99th percentile or, uh, you know, like kind of 1% is unmet uh, of the year, maybe 99.6 or something like that, where it's, it's a small percentage of the time is unmet during the course of a typical year, but it's not going way above and beyond that. And that's actually... That's actually a good thing because you don't want to design for the once in 100 uh, year kind of condition from a mechanical system standpoint, because if you're oversizing for that amount, the systems are going to perform extremely poorly <laughs> at those less than design condition um, kind of operating points, which, which is essentially all of them uh, every, you know, every hour of the year for most years, if you're designing for that once in, once in a 30 year or a hundred year sort of event. So, you know, it's like oversizing the systems to, to meet that kind of demand is not a good thing overall, but designing the envelope to meet that is a different discussion because yep. you're not, you're not getting uh, worse performance out of your envelope at less than design conditions. You're still getting better, <laughs> better performance out of your envelope. So, I think there is a case to be made about going beyond, but beyond code minimum and designing a better, more insulated, tighter envelope uh, for from a resiliency standpoint. It's like better or bigger, bigger air conditioning or heating systems aren't going to do you anything, and in fact, they're going to hurt you because you have to power those systems. And the bigger they are, the more power they demand. But the better your envelope is, the less heating and cooling energy you need, the, be the longer you can operate passively without heat or cooling input during an outage. And if you do have power, the less uh, power and energy you'll need to spend to, to keep it in a comfortable range. So I think there's there's definitely a very strong argument for, for making as best an envelope as you can um, from just a resiliency perspective. 
Yeah, there's really only one good chance to get the envelope right. And uh, right now, many, many people that are so-called professionals in the industry say, okay, code is fine. Well, code is literally as bad as we're legally allowed to do it. And um, that, that's a strange perspective. I've had this conversation multiple times now in the past several weeks with architects, um, you know, where their clients are freaked out and talking about resiliency you know, where they're saying, I want a backup generator, which I think a backup generator is going to be the most popular, like, anniversary and, uh, you know, Mother's <laughs> Day gift <laughs> for the next year or two. Uh, people who are just like, I know how much we hated that. Here's a generator. We're, we're not going to suffer again. Um, but, you know, like the architects uh. <laughs> and their clients are saying, hey, I, you know, like, I want to protect myself in the event of an outage again. What can I do? And really, the the best and the first thing you should be doing is if, if resiliency is important to you, that should orient your thinking from an architectural design standpoint. You shouldn't be putting in walls of glass. You shouldn't be putting in like thermal thermally bridged elements that are going to just suck the heat right out of your building in the winter or, you know, conduct that heat right into your building in the summer. Um, you know, if, if resiliency is truly a goal of the client, that that needs to be reflected in the architectural design, the building envelope design. And that's really the best thing that you can do uh, by far, like putting a huge generator on it uh, and kind of being like, well, we'll just make the power to run the systems and it'll be fine. You know, those are still systems that can fail. You're essentially becoming your own miniature power provider. And so, you know, who's to say that your generator is weatherized sufficiently to maintain power during a six degree sort of event, you know, like generator systems have oil, like if it gets cold enough and you have a diesel fire generator, that that diesel fuel could gel, uh, you know, if you're sucking the propane out of the tanks super fast, it can like freeze the tank and <laughs> the expansion valves potentially uh, cause, you know, pressure issues with the, with the propane supply. Um, if everybody has a natural gas generator, uh, then I don't think anybody's going to be able to operate it. You know, like we're going to see this. I'm, that's what I've been actually telling some clients is, yeah, you could put in a natural gas generator. But if you and all your neighbors put in natural gas generators, those things use more natural gas than your entire home combined when they're running. And so that the distribution system is absolutely not designed for that. And you will depressurize the local natural gas distribution network and then everything will shut down. So. You know, <laughs> just just throwing power and and energy at it are they're not the uh, the best and only. It's way not a systemic sort of, systemic solution. It's not just a systemic solution. Parenthetically, uh, Danny Parker is a fantastic researcher at Florida Solar Energy Center, and he has a battery PV grid on his home. But all his neighbors are just you know pulling their generators out when hurricanes hit Florida, and he said that what you need to appreciate is the cacophony of noise. And the fact that the whole neighborhood smells like, you know, gas emissions, right? So yeah. everyone running a generator is obviously not a solution. Um, but so basically what we're doing is we've, we've optimized the grid. Um, we've deregulated to provide low cost power. We didn't expect this to happen. Hopefully we're going to see a little more tightening up of like, okay, let's harden this grid a little more. Let's, let's actually winterize. What do we think that's going to do to our utility, or, you know, historically low utility rates uh, here in Texas? Yeah, I think you know, the, usually the cost of, uh, of energy is averaged out over the course of the year. The, you know, essentially the, the, the cost that the utilities spend on the power for 
uh, at least Austin Energy customers and others that are on sort of a, a flat or you know flat tiered rate, that cost of power gets averaged out and kind of written into the the cost of the electricity. So. It, it, I think it's a little too soon to say how big an increase we might see. It might be, you know, a cent or something <laughs> like that. It really depends on your your electric provider because if they were properly hedged and you know had power purchase agreements in place and had fixed essentially fixed the electric costs ahead of time and didn't have to buy much or any electricity on the spot market, then then they might not have any issues. Um, but if you're a retail electric pro- provider was just buying on the day ahead market or <laughs> on the spot market, you know, you're totally hosed. Some, some, uh, smaller utilities were not properly, uh, um, they were not properly hedged and have gotten hit with massive bills that have created, you know, liquidity crunch. Yeah. So that, I mean, the, 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 the pricing of this has been a lightning rod for, for, for a bunch, for a bunch of things going on. And there, there, there's a couple things. There's been some big, like, um, there have been some big uh, headlines about people getting sixteen thousand dollar bills and, right. and, and things like that. Right. Those typically, th- those bills were were typically from people who had opted into a real time plan. So in the deregulated or in the in the retail choice part of Texas, you could actually you know choose who you get your electricity from in some cases. And there was a, a company called Gritty that allowed you to actually just take like you know a membership fee plus whatever the wholesale market rate was, which generally was really good, like three cents. Which is like a third of what you know the average rate is, wow. except during that week when it went from three cents to nine dollars a kilowatt hour. So it's like, so there there were some folks that were you know consuming you know energy during this time if they had power, and they're paying these absorbent you know bills. I, I think one needs to kind of look at the long term, like how much less did they pay over the previous years? Maybe it made it all up in one week, or maybe or maybe they did get hosed. Probably like, more than. <laughs> Yeah. I think they got hosed. <laughs> yeah, but probably. Um, but you know, the, so 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 there's those people. Then, but most people are on a fixed rate plan, and and so they and they probably won't see things happen um, in the in the near term. But there's a lot of money that printed through the market that week. It was something like fifty billion, which is normally you know you know just a couple billion that prints through the market. So, you know, um, wow. or, or even less than that. So. What we've actually what we've seen that Charlie alluded to was we've seen some um, some co-ops and some cities and some retail electric providers have defaulted on their payments. They've not paid you know ERCOT, who's again is the financial clearinghouse for the electricity market. Right. They've not paid ERCOT for all of the electricity they consumed during that week, and so ERCOT hasn't been able to pay power plants for all of the electricity that they produced that week. And presumably, maybe they haven't been able to pay their their fuel cost providers or whatever. I don't that that part's that part of the market's more opaque. The further you get away but right now we're sitting at about 2.5 billion dollars in short pays and we don't really know exactly yes. what to do with that um the log the largest short pay we've ever had is two and a half million and so this is you know three orders of magnitude larger than that yeah. the only current mechanism we have on the books right now is to actually uplift that to load basically means we charge customers for it mm-hmm. so ERCOT sends out like a ERCOT charges everyone who consumes energy um, a certain amount, although it's fixed right now. And to the maximum amount you can do is actually two and a half million every 30 days. And at that rate, it would take about 40 years to pay off that Holy event. Holy moly, this is a riddle. Which is not necessarily um, 
um, unheard of because California is still paying for Enron 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And so it's not unheard of in these situations when, when, when someone has to pay, the customer usually is the one who's paying, right. um, but it may be a mortgage that's with us for decades. And so it, but it's unclear how that's exactly going to, that's absent any kind of intervention or bailout or anything like that, just following the protocols, <laughs> all back to natural gas. But I mean, which there has, there has president in Texas of clawing back money from natural gas, like during the seventies, but you know, that was 50 years ago. So yeah, whether yeah. or not the political will exists to do that these days is uh, potentially questionable. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And so we really are needing to wrap up. I just want to, you guys just triggered a few things, right? So short pay, um, clawback, you mentioned the number 50 billion, which is pretty much the number of tons of greenhouse gas of carbon we're emitting to the atmosphere every year. We need to get to zero or negative. And you mentioned a while back thermal generation, right? So, you know, it's like at some level, well, just going super meta on us all right now, climate weirding, climate change is real. And anyone that thinks it's not in the coming months and years is going to be like, oh yeah, it's real. And we're dealing with it now. And thermal generation of power is, you know, let's let's hope in you know 50 to 100 years. First of all, let's hope we're all still around to, to talk about it. Second of all, let's realize like it's going away. It's a terrible idea. We don't need to burn things. I mean, we always need some, but we certainly don't need the the, the amount of natural gas on the grid that we have. Is there any political will from from this storm to uh, help move the ball forward? I mean, it's it's tough in that um, you know this was a multi like a hundred plus hour event. I mean, it's like a, actually like a week long, you know, we had a heat, yeah. we had an ice storm and it got cold several days before this, before the snowstorm and the really cold weather even started. Yeah, that's right. um, and looking at solar production data from different um, clients that we have that have solar arrays on their roof and stuff, solar production cratered for a week. Um, it was cloudy and overcast and we didn't get that much energy you know, the wind was kind of blowing. Um, we had, I mean, like we had some wind blowing, but we didn't have our, uh, like really strong production from that really strong production from solar. So some sort of firm generation capacity is really, um, needed or a massive amount of energy storage, um, to be able to ride through like an event like this, you know, like winter storms are really tough. It's cloudy. It's really cold. And for a long, long period of time. And so, you know, the, the fixes to that are some sort of firm generation that has traditionally been fossil fuels, you know, nuclear power with all of its complications could serve that capacity. Um, the other option is making the grid bigger, you know, interconnecting to other regions that are not experiencing the storm at the exact same time and maybe have the renewables um, uh, uh, producing at that time to be able to sort of balance it out and move the energy where it needs to go. But um, yeah, it's really tough. I I think that, um, you know, it's something that has, we will need to start to think through um, as we get further out into the the, uh, higher penetrations of renewables on the grid. Charlie, any thoughts about where this is going to go? I mean, I, I actually don't think that lack of storage is going to be a long-term constraint if, if we put our minds to it. I mean, energy storage is really expensive right now. It's getting cheaper. I think actually that, um, and getting back to the load side of things, it's like uh, residential power demand and energy consumption drive during these really hot and really cold events. What that means is 
if we improve our housing stock significantly, we are going to significantly reduce that power demand and energy consumption. And so I think there that is where there is still so, so much work to be done. Both um, we should be sort of setting higher standards on new homes being built and there, we should be, you know, actively and aggressively figuring out ways to, you know, uh, better insulate homes and uh, tighten them up and uh, increase the energy efficiency of their systems and equipment. Like that would go quite a long way in uh, helping ease the burden on the electric grid. What? Okay, very last topic then. Um, microgrids, right? Grid islanding. Uh, you know, it, frankly, it, it, this brings up things like environmental justice and social justice issues, because who's going to be on those microgrids? And, right. you know, Josh brought up earlier uh, when we were off mic about the valley, the Rio Grande Valley, the cold made its way down there. And that was just terrible, just a disaster, because those homes are just suggestions of enclosures. But yeah, what about microgrids, Josh? I mean, I think... Uh I mean, I think there's a couple different levels to look at it. There, there's you know a micro grid that would have kept you basically exactly like you were connected to the grid. Like you can run all your appliances, run everything, keep your house you know 75 degrees and the lights on and everything. And and then there's like you know, but it, it doesn't. I don't know that we necessarily need that level of resilience. You know, if, if folks have been able to keep a room warm and maybe you know keep their refrigerator on. And a couple, you know, and charge phones and do stuff. They may have, you know, more, much more comfortably ridden out, ridden through, you know, this this event. And as, as Charlie alluded to, I mean, storage is expensive at this point in time. And so, you know, and and, and our current systems work great in Texas for that, you know, couple hours maybe that you might that we might have issues in the summer when it when it's hot outside and you only need like a couple dozen kilowatt hours to keep your to keep your house, you know, potentially cool. But if you're talking four days straight you know, where you're demanding, you know, extreme amounts of energy to keep your, to keep your house warm. I think that's going to be a taller order in terms of, um, you know, de deploying, um, micro -grids. but being smarter about if we'd have been able to manage appliance level, you know, you know, usage or, or, or other types like that, we could have kept a lot more people, at least more comfortable, you know, during this event, um, and could control things better. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, micro grids and, um, self-islanding and things are, or there's a lot of interest in that. We're seeing that from a lot of our clients. They are, you are building your own power system. They are capital intensive and it's not going to benefit everybody, but I think it will be a long time before people go completely off grid because you are then in charge of managing your own energy reliability 100% of the time. And that is a pain. I think people will still stay grid connected just for that reason, because uh, they don't want to think about it most of the time. Um, where there is a lot of room for improvement is this kind of uh, edge of the system, distributed energy resource management um, kind of level of thinking. And it's something we're actually, um, we're working with a, with a co-op here in Texas that's really trying to push the forefront of that, which I'm really excited about in terms of uh, kind of monitoring some of the big circuits within the home, doing proactive communication uh, with their with their um, member base and saying, hey, uh, you know, this event is coming. If you can turn off your pool pumps or you know turn off uh, your lights or do whatever, and and be able to see kind of like, okay, what kind of impact we're having? Are we actually reducing the load? Which which uh, homes are consuming the most? Maybe we can target them with with a more direct message to let them know. 
uh, it also opens up the opportunity for doing kind of circuit level billing because you know that way you could potentially say, hey, your pool pump is a really luxurious thing that does not need to run right now, but your your heating system is. So we're not going to charge you you know a premium for running that, but we are going to say get do some scarcity pricing on your pool pump or something like that. Like it kind of opens up the opportunities to do that level of, of kind of uh, system management. Um, and right now, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure and the system can't measure it. So I think that's kind of another uh, frontier on the electric grid is this kind of distri- distribution level management of the system. Mm-hmm. That sounds, that sounds good. So unfortunately we need to bring this conversation in for a landing here. Um, so, I have one quick final comment and then like to hear from each of you. So my final comment is just that, you know, I really very much appreciate your intelligence and knowledge and thoughts on this from a mammalian level, like my limbic system, my emotional system, I, I got scared and I am pissed. I just feel that. Like, I just feel this rage and frustration. And maybe it's because we're also a year into a pandemic and I was busy sheltering at home and then I had my shelter go away. But anyway, I appreciate you guys trying to bring me back to rationality, but I'm still feeling it emotionally. Um, final thoughts, Josh? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, electricity, our, the grids, everything, we, we rely so much on them for our, our daily, not only our daily comforts, but just our, you know, our daily existence, our daily work, yeah. you know, it's so like when those are taken away, it's not surprising that, um, you know, that we get, we get thrown off. Yeah, good comment. Yeah, thank you. Charlie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pissed too, uh, to be real honest about it. It, it kind of struck home. Uh, like there was somebody who made a joke during the, during snowpocalypse, uh, you know, when everything was down and, uh, they said, ah, oh, yes, there are two functioning forms of government, HEB and mattress Mac, you know, because like HEBs were still open and were selling food or giving it away if they had lost power and mattress Mac, the big furniture retailer in Houston was letting people come stay in his giant store, you know, if they were without power and needed something. And, um, yeah, so I, I am, uh, extremely disappointed in our state for its, uh, not so much for its lack of planning because it was a kind of a black swan event to some extent, I but I would say in its lack of response, um, and it just going, um, it did not feel like there was a whole lot of like, hey, let's get yeah. out there and be proactive and try and help people. It, it, it was kind of like, oh, let's just get through it and then let's start pointing fingers. Um, yeah. Michael yeah, Weber so, was tweeting about it. This is coming. Get ready before yeah, it happened. So, Where was our governor? So big picture, if you're in the state of Texas and, you, and you're pissed, like you should be pissed at the state legislature and the, the, the governor, you know, yeah. the, like the elected officials are the ones that ultimately – pass the legislation that um, uh, either enable or don't enable uh, kind of these sort of resiliency measures. And so like, if you care about climate change and you care about resiliency of your homes and you're having electricity during uh, catastrophic events, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of where the buck stops, even though they really don't want you to, <laughs> to think, <laughs> think of it that way. Well said, man, that, that is a, it's probably a good poignant place to end it. So you guys, if you want to prevent power outages, vote carefully. Um, Gentlemen, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Likewise. See you guys later. Bye.